Welcome to the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, Robert Sullivan, author and contributing editor at Vogue. Thanks for um, getting ready for a, a great conversation. Uh, you know, every time I've gotten, talk, gotten to talk to Andrew, I come away just completely stimulated and excited. And so uh, I would like to formally introduce him uh, as you know, if you've seen the film or had the chance to hear him speak before, that um, he's really so smart about fashion. I mean, it, it's sort of history and theoretical underpinnings and um, even its implications that it feels kind of tactile. I mean, I, I was trying to think of the fabric that his brain feels like when you hear him talking, but I'm, I'm not that smart. I'm not able to come up with it. But it's definitely a feeling. So, um, so without uh, further ado, uh, Mr. Andrew Bolton. So, I mean, one of the great things about going to all of these shows is that you're, you, 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 see a, you see a dress, you see a piece, and you're thinking about a thousand things already. I mean, it, there's so many great connections. So I, I just wanted to ask you, you know, what set your mind going to this show? If there was a piece that inspired you, and I think I might... <laughs> you might have no an answer, but yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was an idea I'd been thinking about um, for a while, and it was mainly through looking at pieces in our permanent collection in our archives. But there's one there's one particular piece I was writing a paper for um, a journal, and um, which focused on Mondrian's famous um, Yves Saint Laurent's Mondrian dress from 1968. Um, and that that's it. And it's, it's one of the most iconic designs that Saint Laurent did, uh, Saute Couture. And as I was looking at it with our conservator, I realized that uh, most of it was actually machine sewn. And the only presence of the hand was actually the hem and the, and the zipper. And uh, I mean, it came as a surprise to me initially because traditionally um, the Haute Couture has been defined by the handmade. Um, but in actual, actual fact, if you look at this particular piece, it, it, it sort of makes sense it's machine-made. Only machine could make the sort of linear lines of the Mondrian dress. So it sort of makes sense that he chose um, um, the machine as opposed to the hand to actually perfect the lines, to give the semblance of the Mondrian painting. So, so, so this dress in itself brings up all these questions that, that the show then... That, that sort of blossoms into the show, um, seems to me. But the, what, what, so what are the categories? So this, show, this piece almost seems to break the categories that we typically associate with couture and ready to wear. I mean, what are those categories that we typically? Well, I think, um, I mean, um, traditionally at least, um, the haute couture has been defined by the handmade um, and the prêt-à-porter as the machine-made. Um, uh, what, I, what I found was interesting is that the, the sewing machine was actually invented in the 1850s, which was the time that the haute couture came into existence. So in actual fact, the sewing machine helped the haute couture to, to develop, but at the same time it also helps it to um, distinguish it from um, Presaporte, um, which was all about the machine. Um, so that was one of, the, one, of, one of the actual defining characteristics of both the haute couture and Presaporte. Fundamentally, the, the main distinction is the fact that in, in the haute couture, a dress is fit to one person. It's the idea of the model. Um, whereas within uh, a porte it's standardized sizes that fit many bodies. And that's primarily the distinction between the two. Um, but traditionally, it really was about the handmade and the machine made. 
so, so, so just to start with this, here's the question. What is man, you know, what, what is handmade and what is machine made and where's the conflict and what, so what's the aim, just roughly, I of think the that the, um, it was interesting and it really came out of a conversation um, I had with uh, Johnny Ive, actually, who, um, Apple, as you know, is the sponsor of the exhibition. And um, there was a conference on luxury in... Um, London? In, no, it's in, actually in Italy. I think it was in Milan. Um, and what was interesting was, you know, traditionally, again, the, the idea of the hand has always been seen as something about luxury. It's always about superiority. It's about spontaneity. It's about individuality. And the machine's often been seen as something that is uh, inferior, um, about homogenization. It's about mass production. Um, and as I began to work on the exhibition, I found that those sort of... Um, distinctions really don't hold up. And sometimes a dress that's been entirely made by machine is more time consuming and more labor intensive than a dress that's been actually handmade. So I think one of the main um, ideas behind the exhibition is to sort of demystify and debunk some of those associations with the hand and the machine. And at the same time, come up with a new sort of paradigm for um, fashion in the 21st century. Is that not, not, not so limiting as um, au and Pret-a-Porter. Right, right. So, so to take us through this idea, the exploration of these ideas, when we arrive uh, at, at the Met, when we go to the Lehman Wing, uh, we, we see, and I, I guess I can, I'm getting ready to go for the next slide, but we see, um, we see what? What do we, what's the organizational situation? How do you organize it? Um, we structured around Diderot's encyclopedia, and this yes. is one, one example. This is a page from Diderot's encyclopedia, and one of the many things that upsets the world about this book is that, that he, it's the first time that someone says, uh, what about, about fashion, about dress design? It was. It was, the, it was the first time that, in a way, fashion had been um, considered an art form. So it's placed on the same, um, the, same ca the same level as the arts and sciences, which were always the sort of... Um, the most distinguished of the arts since really Greek antiquity. So it really was the first time that fashion was considered an art form. So it was rather radical and provocative in its day. And what's interesting is all, all of the metiers that feature in um, Diderot's encyclopedia, you hear, you see it here you're seeing artificial flowers, but it's also embroidery, it's feather work, it's lace work, it's leather work. And all of those metiers still um, define the haute couture today. Yeah, that's amazing. That th These definitions that you walk with through the show um, are fruitful in, in kind of giving you ideas about how they break and don't break. It, yeah, and it was sort of, you know, it was a, it's such a huge topic, the idea of the man and the machine within, yep. within fashion. So um, I, it, it, it was a very helpful structuring tool to create, to really, really um, um, create a narrative arc for the exhibition. And um, I mean, they're amazing books in themselves. They're really beautiful in, in, in and of themselves. Um, but part of the, um, idea behind the exhibition also is, is to sort of get away from the idea that um, it's fashion and art form. You know, I sort of, it's one of those arguments that com complete constantly hounders, um, and critics are always sort of sort of attacking fashion for not being an art form. Right. So I think part of the idea behind Diderot's encyclopedia was, and also focusing on the artistry of fashion, was for one, once and for all to sort of do away with the idea of is fashion an art form and start asking different questions about fashion. You know, what does it mean? What's its significance? Where's it going? Right. And, and get away from the idea is fashion art. Well, it's a, it's a lot, you feel a lot about process and work and what are the, uh, how 
the, what those things are. And so let, let's, let's try to go through a couple of métiers. Um, and uh, I think the first one that we, well, what are the métiers, just really quickly? Um, the métiers on the up, there's two levels in Lehman. On the upper level is embroidery, featherwork, and artificial flowers. Yes. And then downstairs it's lace work, leather work, pleating. And we have a separate section on tire and flue, tailoring and dressmaking. So um, let's, let's see, I think we go to, uh, yes, we can get to this. Does pleating come under? It sort of does. It's, uh, the um, pleating came out of actually fan making in the 18th century. So fan making, sort of um, uh, the technique that was used to make fans was used to make pleating. Um, but pleating in a way is probably the easy, one of the sort of uh, most straightforward categories to sort of understand the thesis for the exhibition. Right. So, um, so here we have these like, very, very famous uh, dresses. Uh, I mean, wh what are the dates of these dresses? Well, the, this is Isimiyaki, um, Please Please. And again, um, the, the, the pleating section starts with Mariano Ficini, um, who, who made hand-pleated um, silk dresses in the beginning of the 20th century. And even now, we don't. his process is so shrouded in mythology that we're not quite sure how he hand-pleated his, his garments. Um, so it starts off with um, Ficini's hand pleating, and it goes into Mary McFadden, who was one of the first designers to permanently pleat fabric. With Ficini, um, if your dress got caught in the rain or if you sat down, and the, the, the actual pleats would, would become undone, and you'd have to send your dress back to Venice That's to be repleated. That's amazing, too. So, it was, uh, so Mary McFadden's the first person to to do this she was the first one to do permanently pleated garments and it was a uh, uh, it was the process is called mari which is um, her name in japanese and the silk was actually oh it's, it's actually polyester and the reason why is we can have permanently pleats it, it has a, a thermoplasticity that allows the pleats to set but it's a complicated process where the, the fabric itself was woven in Australia, it was dyed in Japan and pleated in New York. Um, but she was definitely was the first one to, to do permanent pleats. And, and so these dresses, uh, and, yeah. And the, yeah, this is, an, this is basically a, an advance of Mary Fadden. So it's Isimiyaki Pleats Please. And he came up with a, um, a technique. So instead of actually pleating fabric, he would pleat garments. So what you're seeing, the big pink piece is the garment before it's pleated. So it's about two and a half or three times the size of the actual finished dress. It must be bigger in order to pleat it down. Completely. And then the one, the one next to it is, is, the, is the final product, the pleated version. Yeah. We have another pleated uh, dress. So this is Raf Simmons for Dior. So this is one of the examples. So even today, most, most pleats are actually um, permanent pleats that are machined. Um, but in the haute couture today, um, some designers still, are still using um, hand pleating. And this is one example. We're going we're gonna to go now to, because, you know, there's a, I mean, I'm, it's, this is such a fraction of, and so I'm racing uh, to get us to flowers. Um, so, so, but this is kind of an excellent, uh, that's, Who's, who's that by? <laughs> the, the two uh, on your left, these two far left, uh, uh, Dior, um, Christian Dior, haute couture from the 50s. In the middle is Christopher Kane, English, a young English designer. Um, the, the, the Dior pieces are entirely um, hand embroidered. Um, the Christopher Kane is entirely machine embroidered. And then the Pradas on the, on the far side are a combination of both hand and machine. And I think, you know, in the exhibition, to me, 
um, one of the ideas behind the exhibition, normally the, the, the hand of the machines are, are always seen as oppositional, as these polar opposites, uh, very um, polarizing. And what we wanted to do was actually present the hand of the machine more as a spectrum of practice or a continuum of practice. So a lot of the actual pieces on display actually have an amalgamation of both the hand of the machine, a synthesis of the two. Let's see, the next dress I have is, yes, okay. Um, this is an amazing dress. I'm, I'm overexcited about this dress. Qu just quickly tell the story. We, we, we um, yeah, so this is Hussein Shaline. It's called the floating dress. Uh, it's actually mechanically operated. So the model um, would, would actually walk into the dress. Hussein Shaline, the designer, would have a remote control. It was on wheels. So the model would actually uh, be wheeled around, remote control. And then the white sort of what, they, what she calls what Hussein calls pollen. They're actually made out of um, paper and um, cerastic crystals. They're attached to these small triggers. So when you press a button, all of the pollen jump off the dress and sort of float down. I, I like love, spinning I love this under the rubric, under the metier of of, of attaching flowers. <laughs> yeah, I bought more lilacs today, and the, <laughs> the apartment is is full of fragrance, but that would be easier. And then this, this dress, uh, again, I mean, I don't remember which metier you had this under. This is actually embroidery. It's a, um, uh, but I'm going out on the edge here, or on a, uh, crossing a line perhaps, because uh, I see it as an organic form. And so, ex if you would, uh, this, it's so exciting to hear how this dress happens. But it's true, uh, Bob, because it was actually inspired by fossils. But in actual fact, it's uh, embroidery that's actually been grown. So it has no stitches. So it's actually um, a, a layer of, of cloth uh, on top of which is placed uh, a layer of rubber, liquid rubber. And then within that, um, Aris van Herpen, the designer, places iron filings and iridescent powder. And she uses a magnet to draw out the iron filings. So what you see, the sort of three-dimensionality of it is actually um, sequins that have been grown through a magnet. I think that, um, see the next dress, uh, oh, well, so we have, actually, I think that's the, the 1300 it, that is, that's right, yeah. So the one in the middle is Chanel, and it's made out of um, 1,300 camellias that have been um, hand-applied. So there, these are more flowers, but I'm, I'm going to be almost crude in the rushing to the next <laughs> uh, slide um, because uh, I wanted to get to lace-making. And this, this dress, 1919, we were saying... So yeah, this is Paul Poiret, and it's actually one of the masterworks of um, our collection. Uh, it was made in 1919. Um, Paul Poiret was really the, the father of modern fashion, and it, he, he was a designer who did away with the corset. Um, he invented clothes that hung from the shoulders as opposed to the waist. The first fashion shoot, uh, Steichen, was dared, I read once, to, uh, yes. to take a photo of, of fashion as art, yeah, um, and, and he used him? I think so, and I think that you know, he very much saw himself as an artist. He was a real bon vivant, and um, he finally ended up his life bankrupt um, and impoverished, but he really was one of the most successful designers of the 20th century, and the most important. And this particular piece, um, the white, it's actually leather, it's kit leather, Amazing. that's been hand-cut and then hand-sewn to the, to the dress. Um, and it's a really refined sort of silhouette. Considering it's 1919, it still has a sort of really modern sort of well, sensibility. Well, yeah, I, I could ask questions for a couple hours because 1919 and all the revolutions are going on. And why does it seem like Emma Goldman could wear this as well as someone at a... So it's, it's a fascinating piece. Absolutely. She, um, she was, he was um, Chanel's um, arch rival. Huh. Um, and there's a very famous anecdote that um, when as Chanel was coming to the fore and Poirot is becoming less and less fashionable, um, Chanel's known for her little black dress. And um, Poiret bumped into her in the street and said to her, oh, Miss Chanel, for whom are you mourning? And she said, for you, monsieur. Um, 
Okay. It's probably then, probably an apocryphal, but great. And I'm, for some reason, this is wrong. I sh but I'm looking at both these. I love looking at all three of these pieces together. And but, but start this, with that one. This one's um, Sarah Bernard van Alexander McQueen, and it's all been laser cut. So it's laser cut pony skin uh, that's been bonded, ultrasonic welded to um, the uh, the coat. And ultrasonic welding is a high acoustic um, um, bonding um, technique that allows you to bond the fabric, two fabrics together without any stitching or any seams. And then, and this one's fascinating. This is. Um, um, Mark Jacobs, Valerie Vuitton, and what's interesting about this particular one is that, again, it's all laser cut, but he, he's he's trying to give the illusion that it's it's hand cut, so he's using the machine to create the, to create the idea of imperfection or errors, and 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 part of the show looks at the idea of you know can a machine think for itself? Can a machine make errors? A lot of creativity within fashion is the result of um, beautiful errors upsetting the machine, um, and this is a really good example of a designer using the machine to create errors through um, laser cutting. We have, we have this piece, which kind of sums up, one could argue, uh, can sum up a lot of what's in the show. So why don't you do that, and then I'll, I'm going to skip the last dress um, and go to questions. So Great. This is the, so this is the um, centerpiece of the exhibition. It's Karl Lagerfeld for Chanel from his Haute Couture 2014 collection. And it was really one of the inspirations for the exhibition. It's, in a way, the perfect case study for the exhibition in terms of the fact that it's this amalgamation between the hand and the machine. So the design of the train was originally um, sketched by hand. He by, sketched it by hand. So he sketched it by hand and then gave it to one of his assistants to... Um, transfer onto a computer where he created this sort of pixelated Baroque pattern. Um, and then the, the gold, what you're seeing here, is actually rhinestone that has been heat transferred onto the fabric, so machine applied to the fabric. And then it was finished by um, hand painting and hand embroidery. So again, a perfect amalgamation between the hand and the machine. And it stands at the yeah in the, in the center of the exhibition. And yesterday, I, I heard that we had our first proposal. Um, somebody proposed through his girlfriend oh, no, in front I, of them. I, so. <laughs> I think you have a quote of his in the show. It says something like, "It's yeah, perhaps it used to matter if a dress was handmade or machine-made, at least in the haute couture, but now things are completely different. The digital revolution has changed the world, uh, Karl Lagerfeld says. But um, So I'm not going to show uh, this dress, uh, which is 3S4. Oh, you know, one of my favorite design teams, um, because um, because there's no time, and so I'm not going to ask you to talk about how, um, you know, you, in a way we think of a computer as, a, you know, not human and not touched, uh, not about touch, but in fact they're taking, they're using 3D printing to to make things that they then use and think about with hands in a way that. So don't say one short thing. About this, I mean, do do you feel that way about this? I mean, I do. You know, it's sort of um, it's a three D printing is fascinating because in in the exhibition, it's um, the show is really focusing on sort of hidden or quiet technologies. So it's not really showing, focusing on sort of um, technology that seems immediately technological, apart from three D printing. And and the main reason to include it is that you know it, it, I think it has the potential to be as um, revolutionary as a sewing machine. Um, the idea of having a 3D printer in your home to 3D print a dress or a jacket to your body is that the ultimate version of haute couture. So it has the potential to be as radical as the um, sewing machine. The moment the the material's not quite there, so this particular one um, is all made out of a sort of powder that solidifies into a solid. So it exists more like an exoskeleton on your body as opposed to clothing. It's really interesting to see that collaboration with the printers. Um, so, who, does anybody have, well, there might be there be a question, yes, go ahead. What, what do you think will continue to define the Okator 20 years from now? 
and that's a really good question and I think this show tries to address that um, without really providing any answers to be honest but I think that what's interesting is that the, the distance between the haute couture and high-end uh, pret-a-porter is really diminishing and I think the distance between fast fashion and um, high-end pret-a-porter is huge but in terms of designer pret-a-porter and haute couture that gap really is really is diminishing I think that the to me the only difference now is fit you know the idea that within the haute couture you can buy a garment exclusively made to your body and very few models are produced whereas in pret-a-porter more models are produced to me that's the sort of only distinction um, I was wondering if you had intended for the audience to experience the exhibit in any specific way or um, if there's any specific route that you're hoping for them to take. For this exhibition. For this exhibition. Yeah, yes, I think that we, and I deliberately wanted to do an exhibition that was more focused on technique and construction after China, which as you say is a very narrative based exhibition. And I, I was beginning to be pigeonholed as being a, a curator that's all about showmanship. So I wanted to sort of pare it back a little bit and just really focus on technique and construction. But I think that way, the way I try to curate is that no matter where you are in the exhibition, it stands alone as a theme. Um, so there is an ideal route, which you start on the top floor and you go through embroidery, featherwork, artificial flowers, you go downstairs to leather, lace and pleating. But no matter where you are on the show, each of those themes stand alone. It's almost like having nine mini shows in one exhibition. So uh, I try to curate shows so that wherever you are, you're not confused by the overarching sort of narrative in a way. Um, do you think in some ways the mechanization of fashion is, is how it became taken seriously as an art? I think it allowed it to um, come into existence. I think um, it allowed the couture to come into existence, for sure. You know, um, as I said, you know, people, Charles Frederick Worth is the sort of father of the couture. And looking at the garments we have in the museum, um, there's a lot of machine work that's gone into it. And it sort of makes sense. He had hundreds and hundreds of clients and was doing thousands of suits and dresses every year. So he needed to use advanced technology in a way to advance his own practice. So I think absolutely, I think that um, the sewing machine in particular, which revolutionized fashion, it allowed, it transformed it from handmade to machine made. So I think certainly the fashion system came to existence through, through the machine for sure. I would like to know why is it only women's wear? Um, I think it was one way of just, um, I mean, it's a good question again, of narrowing our focus. Um, the theme itself was so enormous. Uh, and I think I started off with something like 1,200 outfits um, and, and narrowing it down to what we have now is 170. So not including men's wear was one, one way of narrowing my focus in a way. Um, and, you know, it was... Uh, Curating is a really heartbreaking process sometimes. You have your ideal storyboard. Um, sometimes the designer doesn't have the piece you want or sometimes they don't want to be next to another designer. Um, there's always all these different criteria that um, we have to consider when we're putting together an exhibition. Um, and you, you make a lot of compromises along the way. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to include menswear in it, but it just was a way of narrowing my focus a little bit. Hi, I was wondering if you could elaborate on Apple's, in particular, Johnny Ives' um, involvement in the exhibition. Sure. Um, um, Apple were the sponsor for the exhibition, and uh, it was um, Anna who really brought Johnny to the museum. And um, look, 
whenever we do an exhibition and look for sponsorship, um, we always try to find uh, a company um, or a design house where there's a sort of synergy or a connection to the theme. Um, so um, in terms of this particular exhibition, which is all about um, hand machine, the idea of craftsmanship, which is really all um, what Apple's about, um, it seemed to be the perfect sort of sort of connection. And it's something that's re that the show really spoke to um, to Johnny. You know, he liked the idea of the thesis for the exhibition. He felt that's where um, his focus in terms of Apple is also directed. Um, so it was really just the idea. It was it seemed to be a, a, a synergistic sort of relationship. Um, well, um, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you, you so much.